Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Jeremiah chapter 46 this morning. And um, I, this that fits so well, really, with this, uh, these next few chapters we're going to talk about. But in chapters number 1 through 45 that we've been talking about now for the last couple months, or a few months, these chapters have all been focused on Judah, the people of Judah, the, the nation of Judah. God has been giving messages to Jeremiah, to his people, and focusing on those people in particular. But now, these last several chapters, in the, in the end of Jeremiah, God turns his attention toward the Gentiles, Gentile nations. These, these messages actually came previous, uh, time-wise, but, um, but these are to the nations. Sometimes these chapters, 46 through 51, are called the oracles against the nations. Now, in the ancient world, every nation had their local deity. Baal, Marduk, Dagon, Ashtoreth, every and multiple, multiple other names of these gods that each had their own local jurisdiction. <laughs> Somebody said these gods were like local sports teams. <laughs> they were good at home, but they were pretty weak when they were on the road. <laughs> but the Bible makes it clear that Jehovah, the God of the Bible, is not a mere regional God. (laughs) He's not just a God of some little people group over in the Middle East. God is sovereign over all nations. He transcends national borders. He never loses, home or away. And when we think of Joel Norian and Machek in Ukraine, think about that. What a blessing to know that God is the God of Ukraine too. He never loses, home or away. God started with Adam and Eve, and every person since then has been important to him. Every person that's ever been created is important to God. The Jewish people were chosen as a key part of God's plan to get the saving message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So they were chosen for a purpose, and he had a special plan for them. They would receive the law, they would receive the prophets, and then they would receive ultimately the Messiah himself. And all of this would come through the Jewish people. But the message and the love of God and uh, who God is after are all people of of the earth, the entire globe, and every single person who's ever been born. He loves people, he's concerned about people. You know, recently, it's not just again, in America or Ukraine, but it's so precious because last week, and this happens frequently, but uh, Yesu, which is Pastor Mike Robinette's dear friend in India, who really is, does a lot of work with Pastor Mike and even helps uh, in the pastoring of the home church in India. Yesu is, this dear, dear brother is on a mission for souls and he is on fire for the Lord. And he, is, he travels all around leading people to Christ and he'll periodically get in contact just to say hello. But I, I couldn't help as we were getting ready to go to Easter Sunday and he typed a message that said, happy 
Easter, Pastor Luke, and tell the people of the home church, happy Easter from us here in India. And I just think, we're just doing the same exact thing he's trying to do in India. We're doing the same thing here. This is our mission field. That's his mission field. And our God is an international God. And we need to be internationally invested in the gospel if we're going to be like, if we're going to be doing what God wants us to do. Now, these chapters remind us why we need to be so interested globally. Because judgment, the judgment of God, is coming upon the Jew and Gentile alike. Everybody. And today we're going to see judgments specifically pronounced on three different countries. We're going to see judgment on mighty Egypt, judgment on violent Philistines, and judgment on the wealthy Moabites. These chapters we're going to look at here are prophetic, but they also are poetic. They, uh, which a lot of Jeremiah is, it's beautiful language, but it's crushing language. It's prophetic and it's, judge, it's about a judgment that God's going to send. So let's look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1. We're going to talk about the judgment first on mighty Egypt. And we're going to try to roll through these chapters pretty quickly. So I'm asking you to put on your fastest ears that you have and so you can list, listen real well. Verse 1, here we go. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah, the prophet, against the Gentiles. Again, this is the oracles against the Gentiles. Now notice the word against. This is the word of the Lord against the Gentiles. Again, although God loves the world and God loves every person he's ever made, he must punish sin. He is a just God. He has to do this. And so the chapters that follow contain prophecies about a fate for Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and finally Babylon, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing. Ten nations mentioned in all covering nearly a million square miles of the globe. God is going to speak to these people. Again, as one uh, commentator puts it, he said, God takes the powers and the superpowers of the ancient world and casually orders them around. Who does God think he is? <laughs> God is the God of all nations. In fact, I've been meditating recently on, this, on the fact, and it's been several weeks, maybe because we've been going through Jeremiah, and it's just been in my heart and mind so much, that we live in such a time that people don't even think, it doesn't even come into the mind for most people we come in contact with, that there is a coming judgment. I mean, when's the last time you read a headline about God's plan to judge the world? You know, th nobody says that. That's a ridiculous headline. You're not gonna read it. Or when's the last time you were in a conversation at work and someone was asking you, you know, I've just been feeling like God's gonna judge people the entire world world and uh, that people may, there, there, there's some uh, self-awareness of sin at certain times, but I just, so many people just, they, it doesn't even register that there is coming a day when they are going to stand before God. Even many churches won't discuss this topic. We just totally ignore this as a possibility. It's a foreign concept to actually think there is coming a day where there is a judgment that I will stand in. But Paul didn't, the apostle Paul didn't ignore the judgment in the New Testament. In fact, his messages frequently in the book of Acts talk about God's coming judgment. That's why in his, in his very sermon on, uh, on Mars Hill in Athens, in Acts 17, it was so unusual for the Greek mind 
to even think, first of all, that there's one God who created all things, and he starts off with that, and then he ends about the judgment. It's, it reminds me of Americans. I mean, people just, it doesn't even, if I, if I just came up to the average American and said, God's going to judge this world someday, okay, okay. But that didn't stop Paul from talking about it. He kept doing it, and he kept doing it. Wisely he did it, but he kept talking about the judgment because it's true. And we need to talk about it in the most wise way that we can. The coming day of the Lord should be on our minds and in our mouths. And of all the chapters in Jeremiah that we've been through, these ones that we're about to look at probably should make us sit up and pay attention as Americans more than any of them because God will judge Gentile nations. And this is a reminder of that. These are specific judgments that did happen after they were prophesied about, but the coming day of judgment is still ahead for us in America. Here we go, verse two. Against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, of king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So this is referring to the famous battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C., there's drawings, cave drawings about this and all of that. But this is between the, the two superpowers. Egypt, who was the superpower at the time, and the rising new kid on the block, Babylon. And the pr- prophecy says here was given before 605 BC, and yet it describes this coming battle in detail. Egypt had already killed Josiah, king of Judah. Then they moved north into the area known as Carchemish, right on uh, the Euphrates River, which now is modern-day Turkey and, Turkey and Syria border. Egypt's pride was their military, very strong militarily. They felt untouchable as they settled there in Carchemish for a few years. But here's the warning that God's given for, to them and for any nation or any person who feels invincible. God will attack you. God's coming. And he's going to attack the very thing that you pride yourself in. Notice how detailed God's get, God gets toward Egypt and sometimes even sarcasm we're going to see from God here a little bit. Verse 3, order ye the buckler and shield. These are two types of shield that would cover the entire body. Order ye the buckler and shield and draw near to battle, he tells Egypt. Harness the horses and get up, ye horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets, furbish the spears, and put on the brigandines or the coat of mail. Go ahead, Egypt, he's saying, get everything you can to protect you. Go ahead, put all of your armor on. Get everything you've got together. Go up to the the north Euphrates River. You settled in there. Put on everything. In verse five then, wherefore have I seen them dismayed and turned away back and their mighty ones are beaten down and are fled apace and look not back for fear was round about, saith the Lord. Let not the swift flee away nor the mighty man escape. They shall tumble, they shall stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this that cometh up as a flood? Whose waters are moved as the rivers? Egypt riseth up like a flood and his waters are moved like the rivers and he saith, I will go up and I will cover the earth. I will destroy the city and the inhabitants thereof. Now Egypt is a country who has boasted and even worshiped the Nile River. They boasted about their great Nile. The, rivers, the, river, the Nile River would come and flood the plains every single year, and the pharaohs boasted that just like the Nile flooded the plains, the Egyptians would fill the whole earth the same way. And that's what God's saying here. 
God is saying, fine, who is he that cometh up like a flood? Verse 7, whose waters are moved as the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood. But God invites them to bring their soldiers. Go ahead, bring them all like a flood to the great Euphrates River. Verse 9, come up, ye horses, and rage, ye chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. Such detail that God knew about how uh, experts each of these uh, people groups were. Verse 10, for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Again, this is the battle of Carchemish. A famous battle took place in the north right along that river Euphrates. So think about this, the people of the river, the Nile River that is. That is their boast, that is their strength, that's what they talk about. The people of the Nile were defeated at another river, the Euphrates River. Then verse 11, go up into Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain shalt thou use many medicines, for thou shalt not be cured. The nations have heard of thy shame, and thy cry hath filled the land, for the mighty man hath stumbled against the mighty, and they are fallen both together. It says the nations have heard of thy shame, speaking to Egypt, God is here. The nations truly did hear the shame of Egypt. This battle, again, famous because it marked the beginning of a new superpower, of Egypt's defeat and Babylon rising. And after this battle in the north, God moves down now into the country of Egypt itself. He says, says, so bring your armies up, I'll defeat them up there, and now it's time for Babylon to come move into, into Egypt itself, into your country. Verse 13, the word of the Lord spake to Jeremiah the prophet, now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, should come and smite the land of Egypt. Declare ye in Egypt, and publish in Migdal, and publish in Noph, and Tapanes. Say ye, stand fast and prepare thee, for the sword shall devour round about thee. Why are, thou, thy viol- the, <laughs> why are thy valiant men swept away, he says. They stood not, because the Lord did drive them. He made many to fall, yea, one fell upon another. And they said, Arise, and let us go again to our own people and to the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. They did cry there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He hath passed the time appointed. God says the the king, this Pharaoh, who once had all the power he could ever imagine, look at what he says, is now just a noise. He's He's just a talking head. His day is done. The appointed time for him is past. Notice again how God is in control of every king, every kingdom. This is all God's work. The true king is about to speak. Verse 18, as I live, saith the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and as Carmel by the sea, so shall he come. That is Nebuchadnezzar. He is saying Nebuchadnezzar will come and he will take Egypt captive. Verse 19, O thou daughter dwelling in Egypt, furnish thyself to go into captivity. Here's your warning, Egypt. Get ready. Furnish thyself because you're about to go into captivity. For Noph shall be waste and desolate without an inhabitant. Egypt is like a very fair heifer, but destruction cometh. It cometh out of the north. 
Egypt, as you know, probably loved to worship golden calves. God's people themselves were so influenced by that. But now look what God says. He says, oh, you like to worship golden calves, do you? Well, let me tell you something. Egypt, you're just like a young, beautiful, young, fatted calf. And you're about to be slaughtered. It was also well known that Egypt had mercenaries in their fight, especially at the Battle of Carchemish. And God doesn't miss that detail at all. Look at verse 21. Also her hired men are in the midst of her like fatted bullocks. For they, are also, they also are turned back and are fled away together. They did not stand because the day of their calamity was come upon them and the time of their visitation. The voice thereof shall go like a serpent. Another reference to Egypt's gods. Snakes. If you, if you ever see their mummies or you ever see any of the things, you'll see the snakes on their helmets and all kinds. They love the snakes. And God says, the voice thereof shall go out like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes and hewers of wood. They shall cut down her forest, saith the Lord, though it cannot be searched, because they're more than the grasshoppers and are innumerable. Again, God's saying Babylon, this great nation, is gonna come down with a huge army. It'll be like grasshoppers taking over Egypt, innumerable. And let's finish this. The daughter of Egypt shall be confounded. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. That is Babylon. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saith, Behold, I will punish the multitude of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh and all them that trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants. And afterward, it shall be inhabited, as in the days of old, saith the Lord. Now notice that the, this punishment here at the very end that God is bringing is not a total destruction. God said, afterward, it shall be inhabited. I'm gonna, and, and that's exactly what happened. Babylon came in, history tells us, uh, wiped out Egypt, but even to this day, Egypt has come back and still is inhabited as a nation. Every word, every jot and tittle has come to pass and it will still continue to come to pass in the word of God. But notice now at the very end of this chapter, there's a shift. God stops addressing the Egyptians and he then turns again to his people for two verses here. These are his people who are living in Egypt after the captivity. Again, this is spoken of way before this, but this is for them, verse 27. But fear not thou, O my servant Jacob, and be not dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save thee from afar off, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and be in rest, and at ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee. For I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. So here's what God is saying. God's saying to his people who, as we know, all the previous 45 chapters were to them, and many of them speaking to them that you're going to go into captivity. I'm going to send you into captivity, and then, of course, as we know, what's going to happen after many of them are in captivity, the remnant that is left, many of them get fearful. 
And so they, they escape to Egypt and they think they're going to be safe in Egypt. God promises this remnant now in Egypt that many of them will be judged, but then there will be a remnant of a remnant. And he says to them, I, I want you not to fear. I will not make a full end of thee. My correction, my punishment will be in measure. Meaning it'll be only for a short period. It'll be according to the crime. But, he says at the very end, I will not leave thee wholly unpunished. Punishment was still necessary. You're going to have to face it. But I'm not going to completely wipe you out. There's a great parenting principle here real quick for any of you parents out there. We correct as parents in measure to the crime. We need to be very careful about that as moms and dads. If there's a crime committed in our home, (laughs) we need to do what we need to do to correct it. Uh, but don't let, and don't let things go unpunished. God is going to punish. I can't just let everything go, everybody. And God is a God of justice. He's also a God of mercy, but we have to do that. Then God moves to another group who has been a, a burr in Israel's saddle for years. Chapter 47, the judgment on violent Philistines. Now, we know from, the, from Scripture that the Philistines were a seafaring people. They came from the sea and then landed uh, there on Israel's coastal area and became then a fierce enemy of God's people throughout the years. I wanted to, you may or may not know this, I wanted to share this with you. Through Philistine burial grounds, They've recently discovered bones in all these Philistine burial grounds, and they've taken the bones and done DNA testing. And they've confirmed that these Philistines were Europeans. They came from southern Europe, Greece, and the island of Crete. Crete, the island of Crete, is actually referenced here uh, in this chapter as Kaftor. So in, in, in other words, if you have European descent here this morning and you're wondering where your ancestors, what your ancestors were doing in Old Testament days, well, here you go. They were the Philistines, all right? <laughs> anyway, God has a word for this violent group of people. Jeremiah 47, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before that Pharaoh smote Gaza. By the way, that word Gaza Hear that in the news anytime recently? Israel's still having trouble with the people that now live in Gaza. Rockets flying even over this week. Verse two. Thus saith the Lord, behold, waters rise up out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood and shall overflow the land and all that is therein, the city and them that dwell therein and the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. God says, guess what, Philistines? You have a mighty flood coming for you. It's rising from the north. And who might that be? Once again, it's Babylon. They're going to come in like a flood and it is going to be unstoppable. God is going to deal with you, Philistines, according to your sin and the wickedness and the things that you've, the atrocities that you've committed over these years, just like Egypt. A flood, a flood. The thing about floods is that they are unstoppable. Can't do anything. I'll always remember the great home church flood of 2021. It scared me to death. Here's what happened. In October of last year, 
I don't know if you remember, there was a couple days there where we got a crazy amount of rain in just those couple days. It was so much at one time that it overflowed our retention pond back here. And it was because of Pixley Slough that kind of runs over here. And, and it was starting to back up. And Pixley Slough is what catches really the rainwater from all West Lane and from a lot of other county roads. It's all going in there. So all these county roads are getting water in there. And then it's coming back into our, uh, our canal over here and then back into our retention pond. The retention pond crested and came over back into the parking lots and the parking lots were starting to fill up every parking lot in this whole campus. Uh, our, you know, the guy who normally would take care of that, that is John Burnett here, <laughs> uh, is gone. He's, he was on vacation or whatever, I forget where he was. And so uh, guess who the guy is to stop the flood? Everybody's coming in for school, you know, come, trying to drive their cars through floods and, and it was just getting worse and worse and worse as the hours went by. It was not getting any better. We're putting pumps out, doing everything we can. It was one man against the flood, okay? That's how it felt. And this should have been a reality show, I'm gonna tell you. So I got the tractor and I started taking load after load of dirt to dam up the, <laughs> the, the canal over here to stop Pixley Flu and p- send it back where it came from. But nobody knows. And finally, we got to where it was just a trickle and things started to go down. We had pumps running overnight and finally the parking lot started to go down. The, everything started to, to get less. But man, oh, the panic that just kept on going. I, everything I would do, nothing was working. It just seemed to get higher and higher. And the point is, it was unstoppable. The flood was unstoppable. But nobody knows that I saved our church that day, okay? I, no, no, no pats on the back. Nobody hoisting me up on their shoulders. You know, it's, it's the lonely life of a superhero. I go... <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is here that the judgment of God come, is coming like a flood for all mankind. And for you Philistines, God's saying it's coming like a flood and you are powerless to stop it. And I wish that is the message that people could get right now in America. This is a flood. This is coming and it's because of my sin that this, this, this great judgment is going to come unless somebody saves me. And that is Jesus. There ain't no tractor that's going to help you in that day. Verse 3, at the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, and at the rumbling of his wheels, the fathers shall not even look back to their children for feebleness of hands. It's so scary, that day of judgment. Their fathers are going to run and leave their kids behind. Because of the day that cometh to spoil all the Philistines and to cut off from Tyrus and Zidon every helper that remaineth. For the Lord will spoil the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaphtor. Again, that is Crete. Baldness has come upon Gaza. I knew it was a judgment. Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long wilt thou cut thyself? O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere thou be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet? Seeing the Lord hath given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore, there hath he appointed it. Again, very poetic here, powerful poetry at the end. God has given the sword of the Lord a charge. It's like the sword is personified. Sword, go do your work. How long will you be quiet? How can it be quiet? The Lord has given it a command to go do its job. And God's sword is gonna come against all the evil of this world. And it will not be put back into the scabbard until it's fulfilled every bit of its work and fulfilled everything. 
Interesting correlations here with the sword of the Lord that's mentioned in the New Testament. We don't have time to go into that, but history gives us clear evidence that the Philistines were subdued by the Babylonians. In fact, there's a Babylonian prism that's now in Istanbul, Turkey, that mentions the presence of the kings of Tyre and Sidon, of Gaza and Ashdod that were in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and a prison list of names in Berlin now that they've, they've discovered, it's now in Berlin, records the rations for all these kings of Ashkelon and other and notes other prisoners. So we know all of this took place. The sword of the Lord will always do its job. Let's move on to verse chapter 48 and go through this quickly. This is the judgment on wealthy Moab. And I want to bring out, I want to highlight one specific area here in just a moment. But Moab is a people group. They are descendants of Lot through the incestuous relationship that he had with his daughter. Later we see there's notable Moabites in the Bible like Ruth who was in the line of David, therefore David had Moabite blood in him. They lived, the Moabites lived in a neighboring country to Israel for many years. Currently that country is the country of Jordan to the east of Israel. Sometimes in their relationship, Moab and Israel, Israel would have the upper hand and then sometimes Moab would have the upper hand. But certainly uh, there was no love lost between the two of them. So they're cousins, if you will, to the Jewish people, but not cousins that got along real great. But God was aware and very interested in Moab, just like everywhere else, and he's interested in what goes on in America. He's also interested in the little nation in your home and the little nation that's going on in my home. Chapter 48, against Moab, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe unto Nebo, for it is spoiled. Kiriathium is confounded and taken, Misgab is confounded and dismayed. There shall be no more praise of Moab. This alone was going to hurt this very arrogant nation. In Heshbon, they have devised evil against it. Come and let us cut it off from being a nation. Also, thou shalt be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue thee. Skip to verse 7, please. For because thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures, thou shalt also be taken. And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity with his priests and his princes together. Again, all this detail, God named several specific locations in Moab, and if you lived back then, you would know what the personalities of each of those places. It would be like God saying, San Francisco is confounded and taken. Los Angeles is dismayed. A voice of crying in New York and great destruction in Chicago. That's what God is saying here to Moab. Each one of these places, if you lived in this country, you would know the detail of each of those situations and it should, it, if you live there, it should send a shiver up your spine. God knows the name of every location and he knows everything that's gonna happen in every city. But again, it makes it so plain that God sees and knows all of us. Verse seven, it says, why God's doing this? Thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures. Moab was wealthy because they owned the trade routes and charged taxes on travelers and they also had a booming wine industry they were a wealthy, wealthy nation. And in verse seven there it also says that Kamosh shall go forth into captivity. That was their God. Kamosh was the principal Moabite deity and sacrificing children was an important part of their cult. Put your screaming, crying baby on the hands of Kamosh. Solomon later on erected a, a, a high place for Kamosh because his wife had influenced him. But then later Josiah demolished it. 
This is their God, a wicked, a wealthy people and a wicked, wicked bunch. Skip to verse 11. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his lees and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him and his scent is not changed. I'm gonna end with this here, but I want this is an amazing thought. Again, it was the prosperity of Moab that had ended up being such a curse for these people. This is a remarkable word picture here in verse 11 that God uses and is so relevant for us, I think. The problem with Moab's, Moab is that they had been at ease from their youth and they had settled on their lees or their dregs. This is a picture from the ancient process of refining wine. After fermentation, the wine would sit in the jar or bottle and all the impurities, uh, the dregs, would settle on the bottom. The lees or the dregs would settle on the bottom. Something like coffee grounds at the bottom of a cup. Then they would take that and carefully pour that into another vessel, leaving the dregs in the first vessel. And the same thing, any dregs that were left in that one would settle to the bottom and then they would pour it again and do that several times to get out the impurities so that it wouldn't spoil the taste. But God says here to these people, Moab, you wine growers, you people who know about wine, you have not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Moab, you haven't been shaken up in a while. You haven't been disturbed. You've been at ease. And now you're settled, you're comfortable, you're complacent. And the wine is now spoiled and full of impurities. In the, in the book, Hudson Taylor, in his early years, there's a chapter in there titled, Emptied from Vessel to Vessel, from this passage. It describes how unsettling, there were several months of his ministry that were so unsettling, and so many difficult things happening in his life, but how through those difficulties, God used that to, pre, to really give him a fruitful ministry in China. Let me just remind all of us here this morning that if we're not emptied out from time to time, if we're not disturbed, then what's gonna happen is the taste and the scent is going to remain. This, this taste and the scent of our impurities, we just kind of sit there, we get so settled and we, we don't think of God, our minds run to other things. God says, it's actually good for you sometimes to be disturbed. It's good for you to be shaken up. It's good for you to be poured out from vessel to vessel. Moab had just settled. They'd gotten too comfortable. So here's our questions as we, as we close. Are you settled on your lees? <laughs> Have you gotten too comfortable and stopped seeking the Lord in devotional and Bible reading and prayer? I've noticed for me every time a a disturbance comes in my life that's really truly shakes me, I run to the Lord. And when things are at ease, I walk to the Lord. <laughs> we want the ease of life, but with that ease comes danger. Don't let your time with the Lord slip just because things have been going good. The disturbances work for our good. They help clean out those impurities. Lord, help us run to you. Lord, this morning.
We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.